Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 43. Genesis chapter 43. This afternoon we want to continue studying the book of Genesis and we're looking at gifts fit for a king. Sounds uh, almost like a Christmas uh, message, doesn't it? Well, we know that uh, the wise men were not at the, at the manger, okay? I don't think that's, uh, uh, even though your little manger sat at home, has the wise men probably there. Uh, they become a part of the, the Christmas uh, story because it's so closely tied into when Jesus was a very young child. And so uh, that is an appropriate uh, place to put them. Uh, and I'm not here this afternoon to talk about the wise men uh, in Matthew chapter 2, but we're going to look at some gifts that were brought, and these are gifts fit for a king. Uh, Joseph's brothers, as we study Joseph's life, Joseph's brothers have made one trip into Egypt to buy food, and while they were there, they came face to face with their brother Joseph. He recognized them, but they did not recognize him. In an effort to awaken their dead consciences, to get them to acknowledge their sins, Joseph accuses them of being spies and imprisoned Simeon. They are told to return home and bring their youngest brother Benjamin to Joseph to prove to him that they were telling the truth about having a family back in Canaan. And he already knew the truth. But he was trying to get them to face the truth. Last week we saw how Judah, one of the brothers, began to, we began to see signs and indications that he was growing, maturing, realizing uh, some of the mistakes he'd made. But we come to chapter 43, verse 11, and we'll read here the passage and then we'll see uh, how this fits into what we've described as our title this afternoon genesis 43 verse 11 and their father israel said unto them if it must be so now do this take of the best fruits in the lands in the land of your vessels and carry down the man a present a little balm and a little honey spices and myrrh nuts and almonds and take double money in your hand and the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks carry it again into your hand peradventure it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again unto the man, and God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may send away your other brother and Benjamin. If I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Now here in our text, Judah had convinced Jacob to allow him to take Benjamin with them to Egypt, buy more food. Joseph had told them not to return unless they brought their brother with them. And after a long speech by Judah, Jacob gives in and allows Benjamin to accompany his brothers to Egypt. And before he sends his sons away, Jacob commands them to carry with them some gifts. He's hoping to soften Joseph up and to cause him to treat the sons of Jacob to be a more... Uh, in a more pleasant manner than he did the last time that they were in his presence. And so we're going to talk about the things Jacob sent to Joseph. 
But I would ask you a question. What do you give a man who owns everything? You know, what do you give a person who has everything they, they need? As prime minister of Egypt, he did not need gold. He didn't need silver. And the offer of power would have meant nothing to Joseph. He was sovereign over all the land of Egypt. Jacob could not have offered him knowledge, for he had access to all the knowledge and the advanced learning of Egypt. Uh, they could not offer him service, for he had many servants to do all that he demanded. What could they give a powerful, wise, wealthy man like Joseph? Jacob had the answer, and we'll examine the gifts that he sent to Joseph. Now, as I read this text, and uh, you think about this mess, and, and even as I thought about the message, my thoughts were drawn far higher than a mere man sitting on an ancient throne. As I consider this text, I'm forced to even think about a far greater king. What do you give God who has everything? What do you, what do I do as a poor, miserable creature possibly give to God that has everything? We, you know, God doesn't need wealth. God doesn't need our wealth. He owns all, everything. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains. The wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Psalm 50, verse 10 through 12. Have you remember that chorus? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. He owns the rivers and the rocks and rills, the sun and stars that shine. Wonderful riches more than tongue can tell. He is my father, so they're mine as well. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I know that he will care for me. God doesn't need my wealth. You know, I've got a lot of it. But he doesn't need even those that little bit that I do have. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need our knowledge or our wisdom. God knows all things. Job 42.2 says, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Hebrews 4.13, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God can do anything, anything, anything. God can do anything but fail. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. God can do anything. Anything, anything but fail. He doesn't need my knowledge. He doesn't need my wisdom. God doesn't need my power. He holds the universe and all that's in it. He possesses all power. Genesis 18 and verse 14 says, Is there anything too hard for the Lord? 
Ephesians 3.20, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Matthew 28.18, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. He's able. He's able. I know he's able. I know my Lord is able to carry me through. God doesn't need our service. God doesn't need our service. He commands thousands of angels who exist to do his perfect will. Matthew 26, 53 says, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? You think about the temptation in Matthew chapter 4, temptation of Jesus by Satan, and after the temptation of the wilderness, the angels came and they ministered unto him and praise his name. He allows us to serve him. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. God does not need us or anything that we possess. So what could we possibly give him? And these verses here in Genesis chapter 43, I think, teach us something about that matter. In fact, these verses talk about the only gifts that are worthy of our Savior. I want us to take this particular scene here from the life of Joseph's family and look at the thought, gifts fit for a king. Number one, a king desires simple gifts. A king desires simple gifts. If you look again at verse 11, And their father Israel said unto them, If it must be so now, do this. Take of him best the best fruits. Notice that. The best fruits of the land in your vessels. And carry down the, a man, the man a present. A little balm, a little honey, spices, myrrh, nuts, and almonds. Jacob tells his sons to gather the best fruits of the land to Joseph, and he wants to send Joseph a present. And the idea of that word present there is the idea of a gift expressing loyalty to a superior. Jacob is simply saying this, we're going to send this man the very best that we have. And you look at the list of what they sent Joseph. Balm, honey, spices, myrrh, nuts, and almonds. Well, that doesn't seem like much, does it? In truth, it was a lot, because you see, even a little in the time of famine is a lot. Maybe sometimes you've had this experience when you really didn't have much, and you didn't know if you could give your children even a gift for, pre uh, for Christmas. But you know, when you don't have much, even... A little simple gift can mean so much. These things were commonplace to Jacob and his sons, but they represented the very best that they possessed. Imagine how Joseph must have felt when he received this gift. Remember, he is from Canaan. He hadn't tasted this kind of thing for years. Can you imagine that favorite little food or something that you've enjoyed as a child 
and you haven't tasted it for years and all of a sudden you get that as a gift. How the little things from his home must have gladdened his heart and brought back some very fond memories. They don't, it wasn't just the taste of those nuts or that, uh, that honey. It was the memories that he had to go along with that. The gift Jacob sent to Joseph was a simple gift. But it was a gift fit for a king because it was the best that they had. They reached into their dwindling supplies and they sent the best they possessed to Joseph. And you know, we need to consider our king. He deserves our best. After all that he's done for us, any less would be an insult to him. And yet, sadly, most people are content to take the best for themselves and willing to give the Lord the leftovers. He deserves the best of our time. He should have the first part, the best part, not just the leftovers, if there are any. Our time is a gift from the Lord. He deserves the very best. I should not wear myself out doing things I want to do, but I should devote the best time to him and his will. Often people will be busy during the week and then they'll fill their Saturdays up with activities and all kinds of things, staying up late and then say, oh, I'm too tired to go to church. When they should have prepared themselves to be in church on Sunday by resting and being prepared so that they could give their best time to the Lord. Our king deserves the best of our service. We said already that he doesn't need it, but he deserves the best of our service. Our lives should be spent in the service of his perfect will. Far too often, we only do things we want to do. We serve ourselves. We ignore his will for our lives. But we need to be the best we can where he has placed us. He deserves the best of our resources. Many people buy what they want. They enjoy the fruits of their labors and God, and they give God the leftovers. And yet God deserves and demands the first part of our income. The Bible says, in all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord, Leviticus 27.30. And God's not looking for elaborate, expensive gifts. He expects us to give a very simple gift. He expects us to give him the very best that we have. This is all he expects, and it's all that it, a gift that anyone can ever give him. But it's a gift worthy of a king. Israel came to that place where they were giving less than their best. They received a very stern rebuke from the Lord in Malachi chapter 1 and verse 8, and then in verse 13 it says, And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? And then in verse 13 it says, Yea, also, uh, said also, Behold, what is what a weariness it is that ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts, and ye brought that which was torn and the lame and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Would I accept this 
of your hand, saith the Lord. See, he deserves our best. Once after a pastor had made a, an appeal to the church for a great and worthy cause, a certain woman, a member of the church, came to him and handed him a check for $50. Asked him at the same time if her gift was satisfactory. And the pastor immediately replied, if it represents you. It's a moment of soul searching. She asked to have the check returned to her and she left with it. And a day or two later, she returned handing the pastor a check for $5,000. And she asked the same question, is my gift satisfactory? The pastor gave her the same answer, if it represents you. As before, truth seemed to be driving deeply, and after a few moments of hesitation, she took the check back and left, and later in the week she came back with a check. This time it was for $50,000. And she placed it in the pastor's hand. She said, after earnest, prayerful thought, I have come to the conclusion that this gift does represent me, and I'm happy to give it. I wonder, are you giving your king the absolute best that you have? Or does he have to settle for the second, third, best, or even worse? Does your gift represent who you are before him? Secondly, a king deserves sacrificial gifts. A king deserves sacrificial gifts. Here in verse 12, it says, And take double money in your hand, and the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks, carried again in your hand per adventure. It was an oversight. And when Jacob sends his sons back to Egypt, he tells them to take double the money they had took before. The first time they brought, bought grain, Joseph put the money back in their sacks, and Jacob tells them to take the money back and twice more besides. You see, it was a sacrificial gift to say the least. And our king deserves a sacrificial give, gift as well. And we stop to think about what he sacrificed for us. It should motivate us to surrender all to him. Jesus gave everything he had. And it was to redeem us. He willingly left heaven. Came to this earth. He willingly laid down. Uh, uh, laid aside his glory. And adorned himself in human flesh. He willingly suffered rejection and poverty. And the scorn of man. The hatred. The shame. The pain. And the death, all for us. Surely he deserves no less from those he has redeemed from sin. Now, when we start talking about giving, some people get nervous. People like to be left alone to give as they please. And I can understand that. What I give is none of your business and what you give is none of my business. And yet, my duty as a pastor is to preach the whole counsel of God's word and includes even the part of the Bible that talks about giving. Some people argue, well, the tithing is an Old Testament concept. They say giving 10% is something that was prescribed under the law, and since we're under grace, we're not obligated to give a tenth of our income to the Lord. I would just remind you that Abraham or Abram gave his tithe to Melchizedek long before the law was ever given. To those who say there is a difference between Old Testament giving and New Testament giving, I would say 
You're absolutely right. In the New Testament economy, God wants not just a tenth. He wants it all. He does not just want 10%. He wants the other 90% as well. He wants you and me to have a heart that's willing to surrender all. I surrender all. When we sing that, do we sing a truth or do we sing a lie? That's why Paul said in uh, what he did in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. According to that verse, our giving is to be in proportion to our income. When the Lord prospers us, we are to give back into his work. In the Old Testament time, it was 10%. In this day, a believer should earnestly seek the Lord and find out what God wants him to give, and that's what they should do. And I would stress the fact that the tithe or the 10% is just the beginning. Should never be less than that, but 10% should be the starting point. And from that point, let the Lord guide you in your giving to Him. In truth, He wants to, uh, to tell you how to spend the whole 100%. Someone said the basic question is not how much of our money we should give to God, but how much of God's money we should keep for ourselves. See, God has promised to bless those who give and to curse those who withhold their giving. And when it comes to the matter of giving, what you give is something that is settled between you and the Lord. Now, it's my conviction that we should give in direct relationship to how we have been blessed by him. If he's done anything for us, he deserves our sacrificial giving to his work. I, we don't raise money here. We receive offerings, free will. We don't have bake sales. We don't have car washes. We don't have yard sales to raise funds for the, for the church. We believe that the work of the church is to be financed by the free will gifts of God's people. Sometimes the, uh, the uh, what do I call them? Fundraiser people, call me on the phone. I want to talk to your uh, youth man who uh, is in charge of uh, raising funds. I said, well, we don't raise funds here. We have God's people supporting this work through their, their offerings. Now, they don't want to talk very much after that, so, and I usually don't have time to talk to them anyway. We don't do it that way. Because that's not the Bible way. You can give and you can be a part of what God is doing. Or you can withhold your giving because you don't like this or that. We were talking about church membership this morning. One church that we attended, there was a fellow there that went there for years and never would join. He says, I vote by my offering. That's how he looked at his church membership. He says, I, owe, I vote by giving. Now, thank goodness that, uh, and thank the Lord that later on the man did finally become a member of that church. And we rejoice in the fact that he did. Charles Spurgeon, that great English preacher, was once invited by a wealthy man to come and 
preach in a certain country church to help the membership raise some funds to pay off the debt. Man told Spurgeon he was free to use his country house, his townhouse, or his seaside, uh, seaside home. And Spurgeon wrote back to him and said, sell one of your places and pay off the debt yourself. Do you know that people really do that? They might not like how the church spends the money, or so they stop giving. They might think the preacher makes too much money, and they stop giving. They might not be getting their way, so they stop giving. To me, that's a dangerous game to play. You really believe that the tithe is the Lord's, then you have no right to keep it, to hoard it, or to use it for your own desires. In fact, if you ever find yourself in a church that is so far out of God's will that you can't give to support it, you need to find yourself a new church to attend. Just be careful how you handle God's money. That was a lesson Israel learned the hard way. A lot of people are like the man in the story. Once upon a time, there was a man who had nothing, but God gave him ten apples. He gave him the first three apples to eat. He gave him the second three apples to trade for shelter from the sun and the rain. He gave him the third three apples to trade for clothing to wear. And he gave him the last apple so that he might have something to give back to God to show his gratitude for the other nine. Well, the man ate the first three apples. He traded the second three for a shelter from the sun and the rain. He traded the third three for clothing to wear. And then he looked at the tenth apple, and it was bigger and juicier than all the rest. He knew that God had given him the tenth apple so he might return it to him out of the gratitude for the other nine. But the tenth apple looked bigger, looked juicier than all the rest and he reasoned that God had all the apples he wanted or needed in the world and so the man ate the tenth apple and gave God back the core. Well God will bless those who honor him in their giving and so we need to be giving what we can to the work of the kingdom of God and we need to be giving sacrificially and willingly. A young evangelist and his wife were visiting a church where he was preaching. And during the offering, an usher came to the platform and pushed the offering plate in front of the guest evangelist. The evangelist reached for his wallet and pulled out what he thought was a dollar bill. As he dropped it in the plate, he saw that this one was his only $10 bill. The only thing he had left was a $10 bill. And his heart sank as he saw the bulk of his financial resources disappearing into the church coffers. And to further complicate the matter, the church treasurer failed to give him an honorarium for the service that he had preached. On the way home, he told his wife what had happened. And instead of sympathizing, she said, and just think, the Lord's only going to give you credit for one dollar. That's all you meant to give. Sounds like something my wife would say to me. He only wanted to give one. He gave ten. But she said, the Lord's only going to give you credit for one. Our giving needs to be sacrificial. And then a king demands submissive gifts. Jacob sends Benjamin away with his brothers because that's what Joseph demanded of him. It broke his heart to do so, but he did it 
Uh, anyway, he submitted and he surrendered himself to the will of Joseph and he sent his beloved son away. And more than your time or more than your talents, more than your tithe, God is really interested in having all of you. He wants you to bring what you have completely. He doesn't want just your stuff. He wants you. And that's what he plainly says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and perfect, acceptable and perfect will of God. God knows that when he gets you on the altar, he has everything there is. When you're on the altar, he has your time and your talents and your tithe. And so God works in your life to bring you to the place of total submission. And when he has us, he has all that we are and all that we have. I think this is seen in how the Lord worked in Abraham's life. Little by little, God brought Abraham to the place of total surrender. When he, we arrive at Genesis 22, God tells Abraham to take his son, Isaac, the son of promise, the fulfillment of all the promises of God to a mountain to offer him as a burnt sacrifice. And there is not a moment's hesitation on Abraham's part. He does as he's commanded without question. What a testimony that is. You say, well, how could he do that? He had reached the place in his life where he knew that nothing he had was his. He knew that everything, including Isaac, belonged to the Lord. He knew that regardless of what happened to Isaac, God had an eternal plan for him. And Abraham could safe, safely place his son Isaac in the hands of God with absolute faith. And this whole episode, that whole episode was about God getting Abraham and Isaac uh, was merely a prop and getting Abraham to give everything. Isaac was just the leverage that God would use. And that's the place where God wants us to be as well. He wants us to reach the place where nothing matters but him nothing matters but his will and his glory when we get there our stuff will cease cease to matter when we get to that place we'll gladly lay it all down for him when we get to that place there'll be a very loose grip on the things of this world and its treasure i wonder are we there Shortly after World War II came to a close, Europe began picking up the pieces. Much of the old country had been ravaged by war and ruins, and perhaps the saddest sight of all was the little orphaned children starving in the streets of the war-torn cities. Early one chilly morning, an American soldier was making his way down the, to the barracks in London, and he turned the corner in his jeep and he spotted a little lad with his nose pressed to the window of a pastry shop. And inside the cook was kneading dough for a fresh batch of donuts. The hungry boy stared in silence, watching every move. 
The soldier pulled his jeep to the curb. He stopped, got out, and walked quietly over to where the little fellow was standing. And through the steam-up window, he could see the mouth-watering morsels as they were being pulled uh, from the oil, piping hot. And the boy salivated and released a slight groan as he watched the cook place them into a glass closed counter. The soldier's heart went out to this nameless orphan as he stood beside him. He said, son, would you like some of those? The boy startled and said, oh yeah, I certainly would. The American soldier stepped inside, bought a dozen, put them in a bag, and walked back to where the lad was standing there in the foggy cold of London morning. He smiled and he held out the bag and he said simply, here you are. he turned to walk away, he felt a little tug at his coat. He looked back and heard the child quietly ask, Mister, are you God? We're never more like God than when we give. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We are never more like God than when we give gifts fit for a king. Does he have your best? Does he have your all? Does he have you? Let's pray. Father in heaven.